Hi friends, Tris here. A quick note as I'm editing this. Please stick around after the credits for my thoughts about the whole season. Okay, bye. Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. There are five bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, and even an extra Lost Terminal podcast. That would be lovely of you. Hello world, we have arrived. Mission day 115. We have made port at McMurdo Station. As we sailed around Ross Island, I felt rather at home. Antarctica is covered in lush green vegetation. The continent, not my friend, hopefully. I initially thought it looked like Siberia with its pine forests. That would make sense to me. We're the exact opposite side of the world to North Greenland, which is also a pine forest. But these trees are not the same. They're not even trees. The whole land is covered, horizon to horizon, with giant ferns. The ship was a hive of activity. I scanned the horizon with Maddie's cameras and saw, on the top of what my charts say is called Observation Hill, a large, dark-windowed, wheeled vehicle. It's Antarctica, I'm sure. Her radio's broken, but I shouted through it that we were coming all the same. Captain Yeshi organized the crew in the galley. They each gave their reports. Lindenor said the land looked sound. The giant tree ferns, as she called them, suggested a stability to the ground that we would be able to work safely on. Camille Forrester and Amelie Kotov were each gripping the other's hand very tightly as Amelie spoke, confirming the perfect state of the iron engine and the good condition of the ship, despite the speed at which we had been traveling. Pavel Weda presented the crew with a project he had been working on since Fiji. Lightweight, strong coats with uncountable numbers of pockets, pouches and straps for gear. Maddie recognized the material as the same she is wearing. Since Pavel gifted her with a little coat of her own, I had not been able to persuade her to remove it. Nor do I care to. The captain gave a brief summary of the plan. Everyone would go ashore, keeping contact with the Molly Hughes II through Maddie's connection to me and I would monitor everything from the ship. I would be following along through Maddie's eyes. We'd get the lay of the land as we travelled through the abandoned scientific camp, and then climb up the steep sides of Observation Hill to reach my friend Antarctica. There was no time to lose. The team, the crew, my friends, rushed to help. We came ashore in the middle of the old scientific station. Though now overgrown with grass, moss, and these enormous ferns, the bones of the old buildings were still here. Metal storage sheds, flat-roofed habitations, and large cylindrical liquid storage containers made up the station. More than 128 buildings, I estimated. We passed rusted-out shells of cars and snowmobiles, now with twisted vines knotted through their engines. Maddie thought they looked pretty as she rolled past on her wheels, but I felt nervous imagining these invasive plants in my own circuits. I was reminded of Station 6 as we moved through McMurdo Station. We passed empty buildings with ghastly shadows of shapes inside that reminded me all too much of the depressurized galley, the final resting place of my mother and her crew. 
I was also put in mind of my orbital home by all the vegetation that had reclaimed the base. This reminded me of Dr. Marwood's forest aboard the space shuttle Pacifica. I wonder how big his forest will have grown when we come back to Alexander and his lighthouse. The shuttle is still there, on the beach, cracked in two, the forest now unconstrained by Marwood's terrarium. The crew, with Maddie in tow, stopped at one of the more solid metal buildings. It was circular, with the frame of a geodesic domed roof, just like Alexander built on the other side of the world. Linda Nor carefully stepped inside and reported what she found. It was a kitchen, she thought, with space for cooking and eating. On the walls were painted flags of countries from the old world. She recognised the flags of France, Germany, Spain and Belgium. The others were too weathered to identify, though there were a few well-preserved ones that she didn't recognise. Post-collapse alliances, she guessed. I had not come across this term before. Camille explained to Maddie and I that he was taught that when power shifted after the collapse, some countries imploded, others joined with neighbours to survive. Many of the oil-producing nations in the Middle East, deprived of their monoculture income, returned to desert in a shockingly short time. Dubai, he said, as an example. I thought nervously about Ali's cloud-seeding community just outside the desert of Geneva. We continued up to the back of the station. By the number of habitations we passed, at its height the station could have been a little town, with room for over 1,024 residents. I wonder if that's why Antarctica came back here. To find them. As the land rose at the back of the station, we came across more industrial areas, with larger warehouse buildings. One of the large circular buildings had partially collapsed and we could look inside. It was built below the surface for a way, like a well, and seemed to be a container for liquid hydrocarbons. There was a dirty black sludge sitting at the bottom of it. No open flames, Captain Yeshi cautioned, before we moved on. The buildings thinned out as we started our ascent of Observation Hill. We looked back, at intervals, over the station. It seemed much smaller from up here, and it was more obvious where the ocean had engulfed the lower sections. We reached the top of the hill, and my friend Antarctica, just as the sun was at its zenith overhead. It would not set today, just as it had not set every day since we travelled south of the Antarctic Circle. Her enormous ground vehicle had wheels twice the height of my friend's. She was alone, surrounded by ferns and plants twisted through her chassis, trapped in place, looking out over the station, waiting for her promised crew to return. My friends unloaded their packs of equipment. Pavel passed around some dried fish. Everyone was silent while eating. They might have been silent even if there was nothing to eat, as the decayed monolith of Antarctica's vehicle stood before us. After the food had been consumed, I sensed a reluctance in my friends. I guessed that they were thinking we had discovered a corpse rather than rescued a friend. I was still hopeful that this was not the case. Shall we find a door? I asked, my voice crackling out of Maddie's speakers into the thin midday air. The crew all stood up straighter and looked at Maddie. Yes, she replied first, asking Emily to bring out her tools. Finding the door was easy. 
There was flaked white and yellow paint marking it out on the rear of the rusted vehicle. As Camille and Amelie began prying the heavy door open, I noted a small broken window below and to the left of the door, the hole in Antarctica's armour. After 18 minutes of heavy work, the pair broke open the door. Black, rust-flecked water ran out onto Camille's boots. He called out and stepped back, surprised. He glanced at Maddie, and I felt his shocked look. Hardly an auspicious start to our investigation. Hello there, Amelie called through the door, and coughed as the humid air from inside hit her. And Antarctica, we're here with Seth, she said. There was no response from the speakers of the vehicle. No lights, no signs of life. Pavel and Yeshi picked up Maddie between them and placed her inside. There were banks of computer systems here, desks with instruments on, and I thought I recognised a microscope. But no lights, no sound. Only the creeping vines, twisting through the consoles and cables.
We all pushed into Antarctica's ground vehicle. It was very spacious, once the plants and vines had been pulled out of the doorway. Inside, it was larger than a double-decker bus, but with no rows of seats. At the other end, towards the front, there was a staircase that led up to the second story. The corridor was lined left and right with computer screens, switches, and banks of lights. All dead, all silent. We moved forward slowly. Captain Yeshi cautioned everyone about the thick layer of moss underfoot. My view was from ground level, from Maddie's cameras. She rolled past the consoles, cameras below desk height. I could principally see the slanted doors of cupboards and storage lockers. Yeshi and Amelie were ahead of me, with Pavel and Camille behind. They picked their way carefully through the detritus. Ruined paper and unidentifiable pieces of metal littered the floor, and a sunbeam cut through the window, highlighting the dust in the air. Amelie coughed again. Upon reaching the front of the vehicle, there was no cab or a driver. The desks and analysis machines ran all the way to the front windows. This vehicle would never be driven manually, by hands. Yeshi flipped a few switches, uselessly, and Amelie rummaged behind a screen, pulling out her electrical testing equipment and probing the cables. After a few moments, she looked up at the captain and shook her head, then looked at Maddie briefly before dropping her gaze to her boots. We going up? Pavel asked, breaking the silence. Yes, she took a long breath before putting their foot on the stair. The top level was more domestic. Computers and humans would have shared this space, if any humans had arrived. The left side of the vehicle had bunks for sleeping, with rotted mattresses on, and the right had banks of computers racked up against the wall. Behind Maddie, Camille was pressing buttons on the racks. When there was no reaction, he began hitting the buttons more frantically, flipping switches and turning dials. Camille, Amelie whispered, cautioning him with her tone, if not with her words. Camille punched the dead computer rack and cried out in pain, and then lapsed into frustrated silence. Pavel put his hand on Camille's shoulder. Yeshi raised their eyebrows without speaking, and gestured to the group to move on. We were now at the back of the top story of the enormous ground vehicle that was Antarctica's home. What's this? Yeshi said, pointing at a blank wall with a circular screen in the middle, black and unpowered. Amelie pushed past the captain and said, It looks like the central console. No power still. Seth, there's an access point here. Can you connect? Maddie nervously rolled forward. As her cameras focused on the metal console, we saw many ports where cables could be connected. One I recognised the same connector we used on Station 6. The same connector Alexander had used to download me from the shuttle to the lighthouse systems to save my life. The same connector I used to connect to Ivan's network, and then to his radio array, and then the world. Amelie rummaged in her pack and drew out the cable. She looked into Maddie's cameras and said, Are you ready? Maddie made excited beeps to show her enthusiasm. I said nothing. Dead screens didn't mean Antarctica was gone, but a dead connection would prove it. I wanted to live in ignorance and hope just a little longer. Great, said Emily, taking Maddie's reaction for my own. Jacking in now. And she connected us to the vehicle systems. There was an initial low-level protocol negotiation. Hello, I speak 64 megabit. Do you speak 64 megabit? 
Hello, I see you speak 64 megabit. Yes, I speak 64 megabit. I see you speak 64 megabit. Would you like to negotiate for a higher speed? No, just connect me to my friend, you idiot! The negotiation took longer than I wanted. But I connected, and was greeted with static and noise. List files. I tried. Nothing. Connect network. I instructed. Network disconnected. Seek maintenance support on 1-800-628-1894. There was nothing here. Just the shell of a system. Maddie began crying, a pitiful digital wailing sound. She doesn't know how to cry properly. I was about to ask Emily to disconnect me, but suddenly the static stopped. A voice in my head said, Took Took you you long enough. enough. End transmission. Hello, world. I've met Alexander before, you know. Before I picked up Seth from the lighthouse. I should have told him. But to tell the whole story would have worried the poor boy. Alexander asked me not to. Not till the time was right. Well, it's not getting any more right. So here it is. I should start with the Molly Hughes II. This new ship could have been the death of me. I don't mean that it would have actually killed me, probably, but I could have worked on it back on Svalbard forever. Tinkering and tweaking, a little here and a little there, whiling my life away. Afraid that to take it to sea would have meant that the Molly Hughes II would have suffered the same fate as Alexander's old ship. My old ship the Bondar Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau credits narrated by Lucy Stringer the voice of Antarctica is Wolfie Thorns and the voice of Yeshi is Robin Howell to hear the rest of the Yeshi special get bonus content seasonal gifts and other perks support us at patreon.com forward slash lost terminal pod that would be lovely of you follow us on twitter at lost terminal pod and check out the store at lostterminal.com for shirts posters and other merch Lost Terminal will return for the season 6 premiere on the 4th of October see you then Hi friends, Tris here, aka Namtau, aka the little AI sailing the ocean with his friends. Apart from the other talent you've heard today, I'm the sole writer and producer of Lost Terminal. Thank you so much for sticking with the show for over a year now. I'm able to spend more and more of my time dedicated to the podcast, and it's all thanks to you. I've got big goals for the show, which you can see on the Patreon page. I'm currently working towards two to the five patrons, that's 32 people. When we reach this level, I will set up a Discord server where patrons of all levels can chat with me and, now and then, the other cast members. If you want to help the show even more, I've added the producer tier, a fourth tier that includes everything in all the other tiers, plus your name in the credits of every episode. Thank you all so much for your support and lovely messages. I wake up early every day to make Lost Terminal the best it can be for you. Keep an eye on Twitter and Patreon for announcements. Talk to you again on the 4th of October.